This is John. This is Trav. And this is Jay. Welcome to the Fringeworthy Podcast. This week we'll be talking about integrating Fringeworthy into an already existing Star Wars campaign. Star Wars is a role-playing game set in the universe of the Star Wars movies. Players take the role of scruffy smugglers, aspiring Jedi, and other people who run around the Star Wars universe creating conflict, creating chaos and mayhem wherever they go, trying to fight evil and do good, and the number of possible games with that Star Wars setting are really broad. It seems like we've covered a lot of the issues and ideas around bringing Fringeworthy into a Star Wars game. Is there anything else? Have, have I missed anything? Let's see. I had some notes. Okay, notes? So, ah! <laughs> all right. Droids. Artificial right. intelligences. Okay. Uh, are we considering them to be intelligence that would automatically be excluded by the Fringe Pass? I don't know. Here's the thing. This goes back to what is life. The Fringeworthy game assumes that there's a sort of an energy field about life that can be detected by the Fringe Pass system. And this is consistent with Star Wars with the Force. Yes. But I believe in some instances there have been cases where droids have become Force-sensitive, which was something that people who don't like droids very much would swear couldn't happen because droids aren't alive. So they actually, I believe, threw the idea of a Force-sensitive droid into question in order to jangle this anti-droid bias or prejudice that some people in the Star Wars universe show. Well, I know Uh, that the one that appeared in the movies was supposed to be a cyborg. They had a wetware brain, but a mechanical uh, body. Grievous? General Grievous, yeah. Right. No, General Grievous that I know of wasn't Force-sensitive. He was just... Badass. He had the four lightsabers going and everything. I don't remember him doing force powers, but he I had thought the- he did some force jumps in the movies. That could have been uh, just well, a robotic body, too. Yeah, well, my interpretation of that was it was robotic body. But, you know, what do I know? I don't think that General Grievous was a force sensitive, but I think a cyborg kind of avoids the question because a cyborg is a living body with cybernetic parts. Right, a living brain. Unless he was as cyberized as much as uh, General Grievous was, though. I mean, he basically was more or less, I would say, like 70%, 80% cyborg. It still doesn't address the questions. And so that's something for the GM to decide. If you think that the energy signature of fringeworthiness can be applied to a creature like a droid, then a droid can be fringeworthy. Right. So are droids really alive? Do they have souls or something? then they could be fringeworthy. If they're right. not, then they can't. Right. And if they are not fringeworthy, then because they are intelligent, does that mean that someone can pick them up and push them through a warp? Can they be treated as an object for the purposes of now, portal transit? The way I have been imagining this for this whole conversation is that a droid acts on the fringe system like an object. So somebody could in fact pick up their droid and push them through the warp because a living person is taking their belonging through the uh, portal. The fringe, the fringe pass system would let, would let the droid through, but it would be in a shutdown state when it got through the portal. Yeah. Because okay. it's a device and the fringe, port, the fringe pass don't let devices work. It actually would be going into a shutdown state as it passed through the portal. Mm-hmm. Because and you could so. put it through very slowly... That could be a form of torture for a droid. That would not be very pleasant. Oh, Jay? Yes, sir? Page 362 of the revised core rulebook. Yes? Being inorganic, droids have no connection to the Force. They can never acquire Force speeds, Force skills, or Force points. Okay. Uh, Well, you know, that's the game book's opinion. Mine might be different. Right. If somebody were to go, okay, I have the straight Star Wars canon, fine. I'm yeah. Just saying. I don't know if that's pure Star Wars canon right there. 
again, I seem to remember a story somewhere, and I can't remember which one, that had a droid becoming Force-sensitive, thereby throwing the anti-droid prejudice into question. And I don't know if that was like some random comic book story somewhere or what all, but I don't know if it's considered canon or not. I would suspect that mostly it's not considered it's considered not canon. But it depends on what the GM wants. You know, if the GM wants it to be a questionable point whether or not sending your droid ahead as a Polish mind dis- mind detector is murder, yeah. then he might have droids who can be force sensitive. My discussion of whether or not a droid could or, or may or may not be a living creature and have enough of a, quote, soul, end quote, to become Force-sensitive is really a GM's call. I think most GMs would tend to say no because it, it really kind of violates uh, the, our mental image of what droids really are if they can have souls. At the same time, I played a droid character. I had fun imbuing him with personality and, and having him do things that I didn't expect that were in character and valid for the context he was in. You know, if somebody said, all right, do you want your droid to have force abilities? I'd go, no, that would kind of break the character. But somebody else in another game in another place may say, well, yeah, because I really really like my little droid guy. I don't know. It's possible to have the answer both ways, depending on who we're talking to and what the specific conditions are. Did we talk about how player characters could become fringeworthy? I don't know if, if we went over it in this particular podcast, but we've discussed it before. One of the ideas we're hoping is is that people who are interested in Star Wars are going to listen to this podcast because, you know, and they'll hear about right. Fringeworthy's results. So we want to at least say, hey, you know, Fringeworthy can come okay. to your world and, and add stuff, but also there's the possibility if your character is going to go through, then these are ways in which your characters could have become Fringeworthy. That I know of, the only way non-fringeworthy character can become fringeworthy is to handle a fringe path crystal. One of the keys to the system is to handle one of those for an extended period of time, because the well, more actually, they handle it, the more off, the more there's a chance that they will become fringeworthy. Is that correct? Right. Well, it doesn't actually have to be that long of a period. It can okay. literally be where the first time they, they grab it. Well, no, no. They they have to handle it for a significant. It isn't like someone. Okay. Ta- tosses it to you and you toss it to somebody else you you actually hold it manipulate it put it in your pocket carry a while or okay. let's say like at least five to ten minutes you you manipulate okay. it in some way but this is only what has to happen once a year and each year there's a cumulative five percent chance that you're going okay. to become attuned yeah your character has become fringeworthy without necessarily having to have that quality to begin with right so this also means that there's two possibilities here. One is that you could have somebody who is fringeworthy, who is in the process of making people in an area fringeworthy. Okay. Going somebody. around and making people handle crystals and stuff like that for okay. a period of time and then over years. Now, there are special crystals at the heart of the lightsaber technology. Force users have to gather crystals and then they have to attune them in order to have their lightsabers work properly. It may be that there's some relationship between the crystals that drive the fringe path system and the crystals that are used for lightsabers. Well, it could be that they're orange crystals, which are used for machines and so Okay. So it may be that people who handle these crystals may be becoming attuned without realizing it because they've never been anywhere near a, a portal. Or I've mentioned earlier that uh, you may have a crystal aboard the ship, which is somebody's good luck charm, and and they hand it around, or you know, uh, different people carry it at different times, and retroactively, that good luck charm is what's making people friendworthy. Or a GM could just say everybody's friendworthy somehow. The possibilities are everybody's friendworthy. Travel in the fringe path is not an issue. Second mm-hmm. possibility I see is is that anyone who can use the force is fringeworthy. Okay. Okay, that itself would you know, limit it. Third possibility is that they came into contact with a crystal, and the crystal could be attached to a ceremonial headdress that was worn by the, the royal prince or whatever like that, so your character might have a reason to be in contact with this crystal mm-hmm. for extended periods of time, and therefore that person, at least one person in the group, could be as being fringeworthy. 
Okay. Fourth possibility, and this really comes down to how you create your characters in your campaign. If you create them so they all are connected in some way, then there could actually be a fringeworthy person who is intentionally trying to get people fringeworthy in your past, in your character's history. Let's say you're all from the same world. You all came from the same town, like Tatooine. I mean, everything mostly happens in Moss Eisley. Everyone goes into town in Moss Eisley. As far as I can tell, there's there's no other places there. And if every <laughs> time they came in, you had somebody saying, oh, look at the pretty whatever, or check this out, and people on a constant basis were doing this, you would have a reason for multiple characters to That's become true. bridge work. There's a heck of a story hook there. Who is this right. person, and why is he hanging out on Mos Eisley handing crystals to people? I do not know who this person is. Yes, yes. Yes, and but these crystals do not necessarily look that unusual. I mean, a crystal can be embedded in another object as long as it's exposed enough that you're actually holding the crystal. It could be put into a headdress that you put on, and you might hold in your hand a scepter. There's a lot okay. of things that glow in the Star Wars universe that aren't even crystals. And so a suddenly glowing crystal may not even be of great notice to anybody. Yeah. Uh, it could be some guy who's doing a con game. Instead of using a pea, he's using a crystal, you know. Mm, okay. So, There's Moss Eisley, you know. I still think that's a, just a heck of a heck of a story hook. I mean, who who is that guy and how did he come to be hanging around Moss Eisley with a fringe path key, tracking that back to why that person is there might be something that can give the PCs the lead to find out what's going on. That may be the hook that gets them into contact with the fringe paths. That person doesn't have to be from IDEP. That person could be a fringe walker. That person could be anywhere between huh? the Meller War and the, and the current right. time, that thousand-year right. period. I'm sorry. I didn't mean to apply that the person was necessarily from IDEP. But, I'm not applying it either. I was simply okay. saying, bringing out the fact that most people, when they yeah, see Friendsworthy and they see that IDET is, in the, in the, is, is always at the core of it, they forget the fact that there is actually a thousand-year period between the mm-hmm. major part of the Meller War and when IDET comes into the thing, that in the case of adding Friendsworthy to somebody else's campaign, you could bring characters just off the fringe paths who happen to be traveling. Yeah. And, and they can uh, have their own reasons. Maybe they're trying to create their own IDET. Maybe they're just some kind of refugees going, you know, that fringe system is just too dangerous. There's fringe pirates out there. I don't want to play that anymore. Well, yeah. and then what would they be doing? Raising up a group of people to go back and police the fringe pass so they don't have to? Um, either that or they might not even know that their key is a key. They might just be running, like uh, like John said, a three-card Monty game with it. And, uh, oh, and okay. accidentally making people... It may accidentally making people fringeworthy without knowing that that's what they were doing. Okay, well, yeah, that, that's the possibility that there's a key on a world that just happens to be fall into peop, uh, a hand of someone who brings it into contact with a lot of people. Right, that, that yep. is possible. Okay. Uh, I was thinking of it more along an intentional basis. But yeah, there's. Yeah. so the point is, is that you, you, you can get a key into contact with a large number of people, which means that over a period of, let's say, 20 years, it's almost guaranteed that you're going to create a number of fringeworthy characters. So it's yeah. not that hard to uh, stay within the fringeworthy canon and still have a party of adventurers who have a significant number of them who are fringeworthy, if not all. And yeah, I mean, and it may not have even happened to play. It may just be, uh, why, are, why is it all us and why is it not this? And you would say, oh, remember that one time way back in Mos Eisley? And that guy got you with that three-card Monty game. It could be a Meller. Now, when I say a Meller, it could be an old Meller who is basically trying to raise a force. Or it could be a Master Meller trying to turn someone into Fringeworthy so he can get off this planet. <laughs> mm. Right, because he needs the form of a Fringeworthy person to change into. Right. So first and he has to make them Fringeworthy, and then he'll kill them. Take He'll take their shape, then kill them, or vice versa, depending upon how... It, if it's a master meller, he can just take their shape. But if he's a lower level one, then he has to eat their brain and all the rest of that stuff. But first, they have to make them fringeworthy before they can do the leaving through the portal. Yeah. So, yeah, there's that possibility, too. And 20 years is not too long of a time to for a meller to wait because they're immortal. 
And then we get back into, you know, what would a Mellor be doing for a long period of time stranded in the Star Wars universe, setting himself up to be a, a really powerful crime lord so that when the time came and he could get back to the portal, he had a lot of minions, not necessarily Mellor minions, but more disposable minions. If he's going to go onto the fringe pass, it depends on how, how many crystals he has. If he has two crystals, he can create a lot of his own minions that are Mellor and create a lot of fringe worthy and then have each of the Mellor minions uh, take over that, that fringe worthy's body. And then they can do the shuttle back and forth with the two crystals, giving a crystal to the next guy, the two of them going over, taking the crystal back, going back over, getting the next Mellor, and shuttling them over wherever he wants to go. So mm -hmm. there's a reason to raise an army of Fringeworthy for a Mellor if they want to take a large army of Mellor to another world. If those skills that they're taking the body, you know, taking over in the, in the characters, are really valuable or rare in another world, that could actually be an advantage because the Mellor, though they have a, a, a basic set of skills because they come mm -hmm. from a very high technological commonwealth, they mostly get their skills from the person that they take over their body from. So if they want to bring a bunch of Imperial stormtroopers with their equipment to another world, then they need to have people who have the technological skills in order to run that very specific equipment, that know how yes. to maintain them, that know how to repair them, and that may not be in their own basic tool set as to, as Mellor. There's a GM's excuse to introduce steampunk stormtroopers because the normal tech wouldn't work on the fringe pass. That's true. Okay, I wasn't gonna, I wasn't planning on going there, but whatever. Okay, <laughs> I was actually bouncing that one off the trout. I don't know if he's even awake right now. We're talking about the MacGuffin of a Mellor creating Fringeworthy to take them somewhere else. Introducing steampunk is adding even yet another genre to the Star Wars universe. We probably are adding enough by just mentioning the Fringeworthy. But it's not a bad idea for those really adventuring GMs. That wouldn't be first. Some guy actually did the Star Wars steampunk illustrations. They're actually absolutely wonderful. Yep. Ah, oh, yes, um, sir. Having the characters be victim of this fringeworthy farming and having their first awareness that there's something about them, uh, be mercenaries or bounty hunters, hired by this Mellor crime lord to come grab them and bring them alive to his headquarters so he or one of his lesser Mellor can eat their brains. I mean, that would be a great way to start off a Star Wars campaign. Right. But if you have an existing campaign, it may be that this has happened far in your past Right. And so only now, after they've gone around and they have gotten the fringeworthy thing to twinge on hundreds, maybe even thousands of people in a lot of different worlds, only now is the Mellor decided to try to start gathering up its possible minions. Harvest type. So now all of a sudden, people start finding bodies half-eaten in dumpsters or whatever the equivalent is for the, the, uh, the Star Wars universe. Strange cases of psychosis where people forget who they are and don't seem to have the right kind of memories and walking around zombie-like in the case of a failed Mellor transfer. Takeover. Yeah, at that point we have the beginnings of a Mellor invasion campaign of a, right. of a new campaign reset for an existing Star Wars. No, no, it's, it's not a reset. It's just something you can add to your game. This is true. If you want well, to do I the mean, whole thing, I, yeah, but we're I, not suggesting I, that. We may not be uh, using the term reset in the same way. I'm not thinking starting everything over again. I'm thinking adding a new plot to okay. uh, to, to replace a, a plot that has been finished. Okay, well, fine. Yeah. And disposal of the bodies may not be may not be a problem if you're living, I, I say, on Tatooine and you happen to have a large critter that eats people for a thousand years. Uh, but the problem with that is that doesn't leave the PCs anything to stumble across and try to investigate. That's true, too. Kind of sloppy with their leftovers. Yeah. In episode two, there were an awful lot of seedy places on uh, Coruscant. Yes, yeah. The further down you go, the seedier it gets, which right. is weird. But hey, you know, it yeah. <laughs> it gives you the ability to go into seedy dives and, and pump creepy NPCs for information without having to get any hyperdrives involved. So. Right. Well, that was also the same premise they used in Blade Runner. All the crime was on the street level. We got up to the top of those great 
super buildings and they were all the rich and elite. Aha. Uh-huh. The only other place where there is a, a planet-wide city was Trantor in the Foundation series. And I don't think Asimov really explored it all that well to determine whether or not there was, like, a seedy underbelly. There was a recent blog posting about that where they took the population numbers for Trantor and realized that it has the population density of Alaska. Okay. One of my favorite webcomics, irregular webcomic, had a scene where an irritating Luke Skywalker-like farm boy who happens to have passed his uh, high school physics classes points out that a world city like Coruscant is absolutely impossible. It wouldn't be able to shed any of its own waste heat. It would it would have all sorts of problems. And and after he points out that, you know, you'd have to have 30,000 Star Destroyers, super Star Destroyers full of food delivered each and every day, somebody just turns around and says, you're just one annoying kid. You know that. It's a space fantasy. You start adding real math to it, it breaks real quick. If you have fringeworthy characters who show up on Coruscant and say, hey, wait, none of this could possibly work. Then you as a GM, you just finger your chin and go, yes, you'd think so, and let them and let them beat their heads against it. Yeah, you need to smack those players too, by the way. <laughs> ah, let the, the players will come up with an explanation why it works. Yeah. <laughs> let them discuss why those X-ring wing fighters fly like airplanes in space too. Okay, <laughs> yeah, a little bit too much of that goes a long way. <laughs> But yeah, I mean, that's my point. Star Wars is a fantasy setting with a techno babble overlay. Space opera very often has little science in it. Uh-huh. You know that and are willing to roll with it. And, you know, that that's part of the fun. But don't don't take it too seriously. Just sit back and just relax and watch the show. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> if you're wondering how they eat and breathe and other science facts... Just keep telling yourself it's a TV show. You should really just relax. <laughs> Boy, when I took myself too seriously, I would have been so offended by that. About, you know, what, 10, 15 minutes ago? Okay, so is there anything else we need to cover? If you took a Star Destroyer with a fringe really on board and took a hyperdrive through a portal, would it go through? Uh, no, because, because hyperspace is a different space. Ah. And also the captain just shot you for wanting to do that with a Star Destroyer. But if you had a warp in orbit around a planet, you could take a Star Destroyer and shove it through it. That would be, wow. The portal punches a hole through the Star Destroyer and sends a cylindrical cutout of the Star Destroyer through the portal. Yep. The piece of the Star Destroyer that fit through the portal. Any kind of a spaceship striking a warp with such slow relativistic velocity that the portal would have the time to crush in the the spaceship to fit it through the portal is almost nil. So what you'd end up having is the strength of the starship itself would be reached and you would just tear off pieces as it went through. It'd basically be cored like an apple. This could be used as a means of discovering the fringe pass. You have some kind of hazard in space. I'm just wondering why... There would be a portal in orbit or out in space near a planet. It's a problem portal. That's one of the possibilities. Ah, okay. Yeah. Yes. That's a heck of a problem. It would end the trip of the person who was fringeworthy. You've got fringeworthy farming going on. It's only one fringeworthy. There's more fringeworthy out there. Yep. And maybe this was a problem portal where it was in a a planet that 50,000 years ago didn't have any real population. And now it's like Corazon, which has layers and layers and layers of star lanes. And here's one that gets filled up pretty good every time there's a 5 o'clock traffic. Sooner or later, somebody who's fringeworthy is going to go through. You have a problem portal in orbit. And you have your team of X-wing fire pilots flying in in a single file formation. That would be interesting because I don't think the, the wings would make it through, but the but the rest of the... Sh- the fuselage, yeah. Yeah, it would make it through just fine. It would it would clip the tips off the wings, I think. Better than a D-wing, though. D-wing wouldn't go through. But oh, but, but but the uh, the flyers they had, though, from the, uh, from the from the prequel would just fly right through. Yep. Well, you're, you're assuming that they're hitting dead on, you know. Most likely, you'd just... You'd hit the edge. Or come in three quarters off or one quarter off. I'm thinking more of a warp, not a not a ring station. Even so. I would not really split those sorts of hair if I was jamming it unless I wanted to put the character on a platform in wreckage. 
Right. Well, I'm saying it would be a method for detecting the existence of the portal by having somebody who's fringeworthy crash into it and die. Then you'd have some people who are trying to investigate this, you know, strange anomaly that they might have found. As you said, John, it is possible to detect a warp with a sufficiently sophisticated equipment. It's a discontinuity. Any hyperspace trackers might be able to spot one of those suckers. Mm -hmm. It would look completely weird, but that would just tend to draw the attention. Right. Which might be of interest to the uh, player characters. Adding Fringeworthy to your Star Wars campaign can be a way to introduce the Melora's bad guys, who would be very cool in that role, and to add things to your Star Wars universe that could challenge your players in a different sort of way than the usual Star Wars thing. We hope that we've given you some ideas to have fun with in your game. I mean, that's really what we're here about is having fun. If you do use Fringeworthy in your Star Wars game, please let us know. Come to our website for our podcast at www.tritacsystems.podbean.com and leave a comment. Or you can also reach us through our Yahoo group. Or you can even reach us through tritacgamers.com and leave a message on our blog. I I think that's a very good idea. I'd really like to hear about that. We hope that you have a, a wonderful adventure in your Star Wars game. And we hope that you'll come back to visit us again and listen to more things about the wonderful world of Fringeworthy. And if you do, we'll see you then. But until then... In this Bureau 13 segment, we're speaking about Banes. Okay, Trav, what's a Bane? (laughs) Substance that is used to counter a supernatural being or monster, often administered via weapon. This is the great equalizer in the Bureau 13 game that, frankly, is hardly ever touched upon in other games. You see, in a lot of the games that are out there where you have supernatural hunters, it's almost required that you have somebody in your party who's got magical powers or who's you know a monster himself. And we talked about that in another episode where we talk about the perfect Bureau 13 team construction where we kind of say, yeah, that you should do that. But if you wanted to play a team that was nothing but normal regular humans, you could still be highly effective through the use of Banes. As Trav said, Banes are, are elements or symbols of, or symbols of various elements, various objects that adversely affect or even counteract certain supernaturals. The cliched one is sunlight to a vampire and silver to a werewolf. Exactly. These are things that go far beyond an actual chemical reaction or biological reaction. It could. It's, it's possible. You know, for example, throwing salt on a giant slug-like creature, you know, that would be considered a bane for that creature because of its effect. But we don't think of throwing uh, a Willie Pete phosphorus grenade on somebody as throwing a bane on them. We usually think about something that is inimical to the very core, even concept of that creature. Silver was popular because silver represented purity. Sunlight is purity. Purity, shining down. You can still kill a vampire on a cloudy day. Sunlight, sunlight, even if it's filtered through a cloud, it's still sunlight. And holy water for, say, undead, such as vampires and zombies and whatnot, because it was blessed. Undead was considered the perversion of life, and therefore blessing water and splashing on it, you were, I guess for a better word, sanctifying the creature like right. you were trying to, to break its, to, mm-hmm. to try to release its soul, so to speak. So right. holy water was also another bane used with undead. You infuse the water with uh, an aspect of godliness that a creature that is evil or ungodly would find inimical to it. Salt, in some belief systems, was effective against zombies, or at least helping you put a zombie down once you get a hold of one. Yeah, Yeah. demons also, I've heard, salt is a bane for them. 
It's a preservative. In the TV show Supernatural, and they also did it in the movie uh, Skeleton Key. They used it as a barrier to keep supernatural creatures from crossing doorways. I think also in that one we called, was it Warlock, where the guy got thrown to the future, a witch hunter got thrown to the future. They really researched the old witch-finding methods. And a lot of them were kind of crazy, but you know, hey, in the, at least in the movie, they worked. <laughs> and in the end, they buried the magic book in salt. Yes. And I really liked that movie because this was a good example of a guy who had no supernatural powers of his own. He just had great amount of lore, a great amount of training that allowed him to defeat the supernatural powers of this man who had sold his soul to the devil and therefore had been granted great supernatural power. If this took place in the Bureau universe, he'd be then recruited right after he took care of that. <laughs> Uh, I see Cold Iron here as a bane. I know that Cold Iron, like in Dungeons and Dragons, if you have something made of Cold Iron, would be would bypass. What was that a bane of historically? Fey creatures. Fey, the fairy. Uh, oh, okay. even, all right. Or even demons. Some demons did not like Cold Iron, and that includes steel. I mean, Cold Iron does include steel. Uh, you know, though better yet would be meteoric iron. Meteoric iron. Would, would somehow, it, it fell from the heavens, therefore it actually has some of the heavens in it as well, so it's actually even more effective okay. than gold fashion iron. Right. We usually refer to it as iron that had not gone through a refining process that yeah. caused its basic nature, its crystalline structure, to have been modified through the application of heat or other types of things. Okay. Right. So you could grind it, you could pound it, you know, basically what was called cold pounding, bending, things like that, even some chemical extractions, but, but nothing that would, like recrystallization would be too much. That's just the, manu the, the possible ways of manufacturing things like cold iron. In the old uh, Terror Watch, there was a whole articles about how could you create this or that, and, and I know that was a bit hot topic on the Bureau 13 Yahoo group for a long time. Yeah. Now, there's some Banes, if you look at our list, that you look at and you go, task completion. This is actually would be your entire adventure, would be to complete that task you can, so you can put down that evil. That could be, a task could be solving the, uh, the ghost's problem. You have, a, you have a haunting. And the only way to lay that ghost to rest is to complete its task. Or bury the bones properly. The body may have not been retrieved for a proper burial. Something like that. Wolvesbane, of course, Belladonna for, for lycanthropes. Yeah. This list is it's on page 44 of the D20 Modern Bureau 13 edition. And there's a whole bunch of things, but it's only just the beginning. There are so many different legends and variations. And, of course, in the Bureau 13 world, as we said before, all stories are true. So any monster can have almost an infinite number of varieties. There's some items on the list. Yes, they're available. But it's going to take some time to get you some, like moon dust. Because there's only, what, about uh, 700 pounds worth of, of dust on the Earth right now from the moon? Right. And, and not including, of course, uh, meteorites and things like that. Yes, anything that we know for sure came from the moon is very, very rare. Yeah, absolutely. One of the things that I really liked about the way that Bureau 13 handles it is they're not these guaranteed things uh, in the sense that if you look at like most monsters in like D20 uh, games, they, they have vulnerabilities. They're vulnerable to fire, they're vulnerable to silver, whatever like that. And it's kind of a cut and dried thing. But if you look again on the same chart, they have a table for the effect of the banes. So it's possible for, in a group of creatures, there may be different amounts of sensitivity to this thing. A couple of werewolves that literally touching them with a silver blade and they burst into fire or they causes their flesh to rot off of them, while others might be entirely immune to it, which I think would be a very rare situation, but it's that range of susceptibility also keeps you from becoming complacent. It says, okay, fine, we know it's this, so all we have to do is get our hands on you know, 50 pounds of, of sugar and, and mix it with bleach and you know, pump it into you know, some backpack uh, sprayer and you know, Bob's your uncle. We've got them taken care of. We'll just take them out in an hour. It was, it'll be a, a quick run. That's not necessarily going to be true. No, sometimes all you do is you may just simply as our table shows, you can slow them down, you could freeze them. You might just simply just do uh, D6 worth of damage to them. Might just chase them away. 
Yeah, she's away, yeah. That's all. It's not a guaranteed thing, so that does reduce the effectiveness of the Bane. If you're playing a purely human group, you might want to tone that down, the variation, maybe not so much. You, you wouldn't necessarily want one person to have no effect, the other one killed outright. It just depends on how you want to play it. If you're playing where you're running into a lot of mixed groups and you really need to be able to develop effective tactics, especially if you're bringing them in against an encounter where they're very close to the power level, the combat readiness of the actual party, then knowing that they can count on Banes is probably going to be a lot more important. So as a GM, you might want to be careful about how far you do the variance. There's a lot of different ways of delivering Bane. Some of them are kind of restricted to the fact that you have to do it based upon what the material is, but not necessarily. In the Bureau 13 game, they listed some standard ones, which was the, the backpack sprayer, the shotgun, things like bouncing Betty mines and grenade launchers of various kinds. Paintball gun with custom loads. Paintball guns. Dark would be a real good one, like trank darts, but you put instead of the tranquilizer, you could put the acid or the chlorine or holy water. Right. Put them in trank dart guns. That would go real well. You just yeah. have to bypass if the if that creature happens to have like um thick skin, like in D twenty parlance, natural armor, that could be a problem. Or damage reduction. Now, let's say one of them is daylight or sunlight. Now, the Bureau has their spellcasters. You could have something like darts or bullets or arrows or whatnot that when you fire them and they hit their target, the spell goes off. Therefore, you can have rounds, a Bane delivery system ranged that mm -hmm. can give off these non-liquid, non-solid Banes, or even, you know, through spells, you could even have them do, uh, let's see, strong emotion or a, a word of power. You could have, you know, like power word stun. I don't know. And you could cast it on, on the ammunition. Right. Or if you're looking for another way of delivering, say, sunlight, we talked about one where the Bureau has a space-born mirror they could position. But the other way I was thinking that's more in keeping with the theme of the game, of, which is more supernatural, you get a kit. And what it does, it lets you capture sunlight and store it in a projectile. It's stored sunlight. It's only good for one shot. You miss, you, you're screwed. But if you hit him with that projectile, it will release the sunlight right then and there on, on wherever you hit. Maybe you have to do it at noon, saying certain incantations and capture the sunlight into the projectile and seal it off. And then now don't drop that thing because it'll go off. But don't be afraid to introduce a you know, new and high technology. Because remember that the uh, Fringeworthy are also providing a lot of technical support for the Bureau 13 group. And one story I read, they had a material called slow glass, which was a glass where an image, light itself, would take hours, even days, even months to travel all the way through it. So you could actually have a small disk of glass that had been put out in sunlight and it was traveling through the glass so slowly that even though it was nighttime, it was coming out the other side as pure, unadulterated sunlight because it had been slowed down enough that it was off, well, 12 hours, for example. So at night you could get the day, the previous day sunlight coming through it. Well, it wouldn't be that hard to fashion that into a bullet or uh, uh, the head of uh, an arrow or something like that. So here you have something that's projecting a column or an arc of light in front of it that could be used very effectively as a bane of this kind. And don't forget, too, there's things such as the appointed time. So I'm looking at one of the things is with this ritual. Well, the ritual could be you need to do a certain ritual at a certain spot at a certain time to prevent a bad guy from here appearing or to defeat that bad guy. Oh, I mean, you mean like the planets in alignment, solstice or equinox type thing? Yeah, but you also got to be in a specific location, too, on top of that. So if you're dealing with, say, local Indian legend, you need to be at this certain rock. Well, you get out there, and that, there's that certain rock, and sitting on top of it is a lighthouse. And now you got to figure out how to do this ritual where that lighthouse is. You can make it complex for the players to figure out how to do the ritual and issue the bane. C4. C4.
lighthouse goes away. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, because that won't be conspicuous all of a sudden a lighthouse being gone. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, okay. Uh, one thing that, uh, since you're mentioning conspicuous, uh, one of the benefits of a bane is that most of these banes mm. are not illegal. So, you know, you walk around all the time with guns and automatic weapons and things like that. And you, you have false identities. You're not really police officers or FBI agents, unless, of course, you decide to do the, the Bureau 13 is actually a, a secret part of, of the FBI. In, in a lot of campaigns, they're just this super, super secret organization, and all the identities that they have are really fake. So if you walk around with a whole lot of automatic weapons and things like that, you're putting yourself at risk to being picked up by the police and certainly being identified as being a dangerous person to be around. However, if you're somebody who's walking around with a, a sprayer or a, a bag full of sand or a little backpack that's filled with little vials in it. Uh, uh, yeah, there, that's, still, that's still dangerous. <laughs> well, I mean, yeah, they might think you're a drug dealer. But, but the point is, is that, you know, you, if you got stopped by the police and they looked at what you had, you could prove what each thing was in there, they couldn't arrest you. They'd say, well, what are you doing with all that? He says, oh, I'm, I'm just a collector. I'm, I'm you know, finding all kinds of interesting things, and I, I take them around the world, and I, I show them off to people. You know, here's sand from the Black Sea, and here's a butterfly you know, from uh, Stonehenge. And they're like, oh, well, that's all very interesting. Well, you, you seem to be harmless. But meanwhile, you're carrying the equivalent of a nuke versus various types of supernatural creatures. And there are standards. I mean, we're not saying you, you know, come up with a random bane for everything because right. you can stay with the standards. So that means your average bureau agent is wearing a religious icon of his or her belief. They may have like a little silver dagger that hangs from a chain around their neck. And they have an umbrella that, by God, you take the thing off the chain, it fits right on the tip of the umbrella. You now have a sticky pokey, pokey stick with a silver tip to it. Or even the umbrella has silver bits on it. Right. And they list as part of the Bain delivery system on page 44, they talk yeah. about where you have a, a small vest that has like 80 pockets in it, each one holding a separate Bain, which is really good if you go into a situation where you don't know what you're going to need. And so having a small amount of material, but not, you know, insignificant, <laughs> at least two or three doses worth, because what if you miss, right? <laughs> Gentlemen, you do remember the first Hellboy movie. I do, yeah. but which? But what part are you referring to? The bullets that Big Baby had. Five different types of banes in these big, thick bullets, like mistletoe, cold iron, and I think three other things, all in these big, clear bullets that he just would pop into the gun, and it's like he was, like, covering his bases in one shot to make sure that, you know... <laughs> right. It would down something no matter what because he had all the banes in one. Of course, you would have to really be rolling good on your craft mechanical skill to do this. Sure. But well, something like that, a multi-bane shot. Right. He has somebody with the uh, prestige class of dispersals and eliminations. And he, he, they have bonuses for doing that kind of stuff. You're an agent for the Bureau in the back of your van. or You have the uh, grenade launcher. But it doesn't launch grenades. It launches multi-bane shells. Yeah. Uh, in my campaign, favorite ammo was the, what was referred to as the silver bullets, the Bureau 13 Specials, because it was a wood bullet that had been compressed to the point where it was hard as rock. It was coated in silver, and it was packed in holy water. And in some cases, they actually had a, a thin little vial as a center part of the bullet of holy water inside of it. And that way they could cover werewolves, vampires, most of your generic demon-type creatures. It would affect all of them. Yeah, it would be like a glazer round, though. It wouldn't even go through a sheetrock wall. Well, yeah, and we don't want that either. We're not trying to shoot people. So they, they loved it. They referred to them as cotton rounds, as in the anacronym Creatures of the Night Specials. Oh, okay. All right. <laughs> You gotta make sure when your buddy's firing his stuff that he's actually firing the right thing. Bane. <laughs> yeah. The right bane is important. Yeah. I liked your idea, John, with the orbital mirror. Yeah. 
Here you have a satellite, which when they, they turn their telescope on, it looks like a nice big round uh, satellite up there. But it really, what you're seeing is the backside of a parabolic mirror, which they can flip around and actually send down a fairly good beam of light, of real sunlight, directly down onto a uh, nighttime location. What's better than that, Bruce? Because uh, I don't think you've seen that video, but... They they have inflatables they can do. So it's an inflatable satellite. So most of the time it's just small and compact. When you need it, floop up it and it inflates up and now it's ready to go. And right. shine, shine, baby, shine. <sighs> there are several emotions on here on the list, like greed, hate. But yeah, we have, you know, you look through the list, we have belief. Okay. Uh, I really believe in gravity. Does that work? No. In some of the Hammer horror films, when you're using the cross, the vampire says it's not going to work unless you believe. Yeah. Belief in something is important. Belief in the uh, power of, of anything. Belief in another person can give them the strength that they need in order to defeat a monster. Yeah. You know, it, it all depends on how you want to set up your monsters. And those kinds of things, by the way, are very, very interesting because they trigger character-driven behavior. Yeah. That, that makes these Banes so much more interesting than just simply grabbing a handful of saltpeter and slapping it into a bean bag and throwing it like a chalk bag across the room and taking out a, a skeletal reaver or something like that. I love the other one, fear. Fear is another one you can you use as a Bane. So I'm going, so yeah, so this has got to be a monster or a critter that really doesn't want you to be afraid of it. Because if, if you're afraid of it, that's a negative emotion and doesn't like that and it hurts it in the process. Right. Some ghosts, they may be ghosts of misguided spirits. They're actually good people, but they don't realize the effect of their presence on normal people. They touch them and it'll literally, you know, uh, draw the life force from them. So showing a great deal of emotion toward them and fear. Casper the ghost. Yeah, yeah. Would, would actually drive them away. Yeah. Because they can't deal with those intense emotions. I love the gesture. Now, there's a great one. I can think of a few gestures. Uh, <laughs> just we're talking, you, you, you use as a bane, though. Yeah. Well, how about a genuflect? Yep, a genuflect. The Hindus also have mudras, which are your hands are clasped in various ways for spiritual enlightenment. In my four years of Kung Fu, there was a bit of... Uh, Hindu influence in that composite art, and I had to do various mudras during meditation. Those could be used as a way to ward off or stop supernatural yeah. beings. Now, we do actually have listings in here, good magic and evil magic. And there are some things you can, you can say very definitely are evil magic, but a lot of times it really depends on, on who is wielding the magic at that point. It may also be where the source of the magic comes from. That's true. In my campaign, one of the tricks for getting a lot of magical power was by taking a human soul and literally damaging it and, ca and causing a release of energy that could be used to power magical spells. That would be a, a good example of evil magic. Sort of like apotheosis, where you're sacrificing human spirits to power a very powerful spell. Right. See, what we said was that you can't destroy a human soul. It's immortal. It's, it's eternal. It's from God. But you can hurt it. You can cause an injury where it will take thousands of even millions of years to heal. And that act releases a great deal of energy, but by its very nature, it was therefore evil. Yeah. And, of course, as you go down the list, you see things like music. Oh, yeah. Mars invades. <laughs> Mar Mars attacks, yes. You know, that one song that caused their heads to explode. Yeah, the yeah. slim... Slim, uh, Slim Whitman song, yeah, or um, <laughs> singing "Attack of the Killer Tomatoes" to the Killer Tomatoes, yeah, yeah, right. Breaking the fourth wall there, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, and singing hymns, yeah. Oh yes, yes. Oh, can ward off uh, evil creatures. Well, I think again that can be chalked up again, not necessarily to the hymns. I think it may also that a hymn in and of itself that may be back on the whole faith thing. You but it also, there are words of power that might be in hymns or other songs yeah. that by, by saying them repetitiously, chanting, that creates a bane against a particular kind of creature. I can see it now. It's a special team of Gregorian monks that come along and do your chanting for you. We need them. <laughs> hey, if it works, I'll put them on retainer. Yeah. 
looking at things like specific food, a good McDonald's hamburger. Where? Uh, Where? No, AC, we're ripping on people. We shouldn't do it. Yeah, it's the no, no. The McDLT was a decent hamburger. I wish they'd bring it back. Yeah. Yeah, that Thanks, actually, I'd be hungry for a McRib. Thanks a lot, Bruce. Yeah. <laughs> it holds no power over me, sir. Uh, <laughs> Pacific food does fall uh, under some um, various, like, like the uh, cargo cults. Spam was the specific food they, they wanted like, like crazy. I mean, hey. You know, oh, yeah. Right. So, you know, if you're dealing with Polynesians, you may have to appease the spirit with a big old, big old can of Spam. I mean, human beings are allergic to things like peanuts and other things like that. Yeah. Why is it so hard to believe that a supernatural creature would be allergic unto death, possibly, of some specific kind of food? Well, also, there was there were foods, and I believe this is in Bureau 13D20, in the D100 list of various things you can run across, and one of them was magical food, and it may be like... Legendary food was another. Yes, yes, yeah. Legendary food. That's what I meant, like manna from heaven. The uh, golden apples uh, from uh, the tree, one of the trees that was like Athena was after, right? Yeah, uh, yeah. And uh, fairy meals. Never eat fairy meals. Well, actually, you can't eat a fairy meal as long as they give you something back in return. Right, yeah. Usually if you drank, eat or drank fairy food, you'd end up dancing until you literally died from exhaustion. Or you yeah. go to sleep and you wake up and it's 100 years later. Right, exactly. Yeah, the right, whole Rip right. Van Winkle thing. Yeah. yeah. Uh, let's see here. True name. Oh, that's another one. Yeah. Any cultures throughout the world, knowing a being's true name gives you power over it, and they will do anything and everything to make that as big a secret as possible. I believe the story Rumpelstiltskin was the prime example of the whole thing of true name magic. It was also very common in the stories about jinns. Yeah. Oh, yes. Um, if you want to explore those rules, I believe in D&D, the Tome of Magic with true name magic would be good. And that would be real easy to convert to D20 Modern to use in a bureau game. Sure. Yeah. But yeah, true name magic spells that you have like, oh, the real name for Earth might be Trezinogen. And if you speak that in a spell, your Earth-based spells will be more powerful. And you can use that against a certain type of uh, creature. Yeah. Right. Well, the classic situation is where you, by saying the true name of a creature, it can't harm you. Yeah. It, it takes away all its ability to, to do you any harm whatsoever, and either it then has to go away and never be seen again, or it becomes your unwilling slave. And they'll do everything in their power to get out of that situation. <laughs> well, yeah, but that, that may not be possible. I mean, sometimes it's, it's really cut and dried. See this one group, there's one bureau team sitting there, and they got this morose look on their face. Behind them is this large balrog working in the kitchen. And they're going, I told you, you shouldn't have used this true name. I told you. Hey, guys, you want some burgers? I'm cooking up some burgers back here. Yeah. Well, that's a whole other thing where, you know, when the supernatural comes to stay and you can't get rid of them. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's you know when when the the supernatural isn't trying to kill you, so you don't feel like you can destroy it, but at the same time, it won't go away. <laughs> All right, do we have anything more on uh, in, uh, in general on Bane's? Oh, let's see. I'm trying to think of any. I'm looking through this here, real quick. Not really, you know, specific, but anything more about the use of them or. A lot of banes have to be used in a form of ritual. It just simply spray some with salt. It may not work. You may have to actually. You would have to go through a ritual to apply the salt in certain means or methods. Like we said with zombies, you got to stuff their mouth full of salt. Right. I, I agree, John. And and I've always used that concept with with holy water. You know, yeah. we, we had people who said, oh, I'm going to go and get this 55 gallon drum of holy water, and then I'm going to you know do this and that. And I said, no. That's not going to work. It's only holy water as long as you treat it like it's holy water. Yeah. So you can't take your holy water and put it into your uh, plastic pistol. You, you have to put it into a silver flask. You have to treat it as if you know it is what it is. It's, it's an object that's been imbued by a, uh, a greater power to, to do some specific uh, task. 
And if you deliver it, you need one of those holy water sprink, sprit, spritzers they use in the, in the Catholic Church. Right. Dip it in, spritz, spritz, spritz. Right. The point was is that it was treated. While you're chanting. Right. While you're chanting. Uh-huh. You just spritz it without chanting. It's your spraying water. You have to, you know, in the name of God, you know, you've got to invoke it. You have to invoke it. If you don't invoke it, you're just hitting it with water. Right. Now, this doesn't mean that you can't do something like, you know, uh, uh, turn an entire pool, uh, swimming pool full of water into holy water. It doesn't mean you can't go and turn the, the water tank that's on the top of the building into holy water and then br- spray it all down through the building. It just means that once you've created this, you're going to have a kind of, it's a limited time before this thing's going to revert back to its, uh, n- what would be referred to as mundane version. Because it's not in an object that's been sanctified specifically for this purpose. For a short period of time, it would still be good. And I'm not saying you shouldn't do that. I'm just saying that a lot of objects only have these types of qualities that we're talking about because of, as you said, John, preparation or use or the fact that they have been specifically been treated in a way that makes them special. And that's what makes them a bane. Richard, do you have anything final you want to say about banes? No, you've done a wonderful job. It's okay. uh, I really couldn't think of anything more to say. Okay. Other than sometimes they're really odd things will affect your monsters and your creatures. Right. And the main thing is the how, how do you deliver them and can you deliver them? Yeah. It may be that Bane has to be delivered by a specific person as well as being a certain type. You need Cheer Will's Bane. Well, you have to take a silver scythe at midnight by a virgin to cut the Wolvesbane so it's proper. Otherwise, okay, it may work. It may not be as good as, as Wolvesbane gathered that way. Right. Okay. Oh. Never, never, never buy your Banes at Dollar General. <laughs> <laughs> and that's also provides an opportunity in your game to create some kind of a Bane network of suppliers where you can have people who run bookstores or herb shops and things like that, but they can also keep a special supply of of pure banes for team members as they run across them during their adventures. Yeah, you got some guy on the street selling banes. He's like part of the underground, you know, secret supernatural world, and he's there in a back alley with a trench coat. Hey, I got banes for you. I got wolves bane. I got... (laughs) He's your NPC that hooks you up all the time. I got Spider Bane. Yeah, (laughs) Yeah. right. (laughs) You know, you talk about magic bookstores. There's the traveling magic store. If you know what you're looking for, you can find that store in any city. It's usually down a back alley, around a corner, and there it is. But later on, it's not there anymore. Oh, okay. That's cool. (laughs) Yeah, just the the traveling magic store. (laughs) As long as it's not abused, that's great. Yeah. Yeah. I like the idea that these are solutions that aren't necessarily requiring magical abilities on the part of the participants. So you could have normal people who had a lot of skill in lore could be able to gather up these very desirable items that could then be used, you know, as in your fight against the supernatural as an, a team because there are people in the game who don't you won't use psionics and they won't use magic and they won't have supernatural people in their team so they need something to counterbalance that or at least to you know make them just as strong and i think banes is probably a really good way of going just putting a lot of skill into uh, arcane lore not supernatural knowledge nature oh, yes. knowledge um, you know you know, history. See, all those things could be used to do research and be able to... Knowledge religion is another one. Yes. Right. See, all those skills, if you have high skills in those, you know, you can use that to find banes and to purify them and, and to prepare them for use. And then when you run into that, that supernatural that nothing, everything bounces off of, well, you've got something that, that will stick. Oh, your craft skills, especially chemical and pharmaceutical, might come in handy on that too. So all these people that say, oh, we have to have a mage in the party. We have to have this. No, you have another option. If you want to go that route, it's there. Yep. So thanks for joining us again for another 
great installment of the TriTech Games Podcast. Uh, we hope that uh, you've been able to learn something that will really make your games exciting and awesome. And we hope that if you have good ideas like this, if you uh, if something triggers with you that really seems to resonate, please come to our forums, either at the tritechsystems.podbean.com or our Yahoo groups. Uh, that the uh, Yahoo uh, Bureau 13 or Fringeworthy or at TritechGamers.com where you're always welcome to join in on the conversations and post messages and questions and great ideas that you might have. I, I want to thank John and Travis uh, and especially Richard Tohoka for joining us tonight and we hope to, that you will join us again in our future episodes. But until then, this is Bruce Sheffer and my bane is sweet potatoes. This is John Ryer, and my bane is apple fritters. And this is Trav. My bane is raspberries. And this is Richard Tohoka. My bane is licorice. The Tri-Tech Podcast is protected under the Creative Commons License 3.0. No commercial distribution or derivatives are allowed. The Tri-Tech Podcast is wholly owned by Tri-Tech Games. Visit us at www.tritechgamers.com or on Facebook. Hi, this is Trav of the Travcast, Hour 3 of Blind Wolf's Rubber Room Association on DementiaRadio.org, Tuesdays, 8 to 9 p.m. Eastern.